This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight you're with the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. This is the community show where we interview people who are working in the community on behalf of climate action. Now, the news has covered the Texas floods very comprehensively. I wonder if you've picked up, as I have, that they don't really mention climate change, hardly at all. What they also don't mention very much is the much more shocking floods in Bangladesh, India and Nepal. And those floods have wiped out people's livelihood, um, their houses, people have been, millions have been evacuated and over a thousand people have died. I'm not saying that what's happening in Texas isn't a tragedy also, but it's covered to the ex, ex- um, you know, to the exclusion of these other major climate events. Now, people say, oh, you can't point the finger at climate change. Well, we can say that climate change intensifies these monsoon rains, these massive cyclones, the heat in the atmosphere just fuels them, and the heat is caused by our carbon emissions, our methane and carbon emissions, the uh, the um, global greenhouse gases. So tonight we're going to look at an aspect that fuels climate change that we've looked at once before and I want to build on that. It's land clearing. Now, when you look on television about climate change, you often see these smokestacks and you just think, oh, get rid of the coal-fired power stations, get rid of the petrol-driven cars, and we'll be right. But it won't be because the land sector all around the world emits a lot of carbon. So we've got um, a member of Parliament from New South Wales, Dr. Marine Faruqi, on the line, and she's been very um, strong against the weakening of laws against land clearing that were in the New South Wales Parliament. Now they've made it much easier to do land clearing. So uh, she's a member of the New South Wales Parliament. I've heard her speak to scientists, farmers, ecologists and forest defenders, and she's the Greens spokesman on the environment. She has climate change front and centre, as far as I can see. And when New South Wales weakened their land clearing laws in uh, 2016, she made this comment. She said, make no mistake, we will repeal these laws. So welcome, Maureen. Um, good evening, Vivian. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and absolutely, we will repeal these laws. I already have a bill in front of Parliament to do that. Oh, that's terrific. It's a pity, isn't it, that it has to be two steps forward and three steps back? It is such a shame, and especially in New South Wales at this point in time, wherever you look, our environment is really a threat. It's green spaces, it's bushland, it's forests. It's even trees on the roadside, these really old, beautiful, 100-year-old trees which are being chopped down willy-nilly without a single thought to the habitat that they provide um, animals, um, to the climate change impacts that that will create, and also uh, for people as well to the cooling effects they provide when climate change now is biting back, in fact, and is creating heat islands in many urban areas. So it's a very short-sighted kind of money-making exercise without 
uh, thought to the future, sadly. Maureen, um, Melbourne listeners might not know you very well, so I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background. I notice your comments are usually backed by scientific um, research and you talk in terms of ecocide. What's, what's brought you to this point? So I am by trade. I am an environmental and a civil engineer. Um, and, you know, my... Um, Research has been a lot into climate change and into water management, and I was an academic at the University of New South Wales for many years, talking, teaching sustainability and environmental management. But I have also worked in local councils across New South Wales, uh, mainly in the area of managing the environment, stormwater, flooding, estuaries, um, as well as in consulting firms. So I've lived and breathed the environment for a very long time, and probably that comes through when I speak. Mm. Um, and I think that's a good thing that you come into Parliament with some real-life experience, um, and you can use that, in effect, to, to create laws, to debate laws. Um, and I, I just think that is so, so helpful. And whenever I speak to, when I used to speak to my students or young budding politicians, I always encourage them to, when they finish university, to go out, work in the real world, and if they have aspirations to be an MP, then come back and use all that experience in making better laws uh, for the environment, for our people. Well, I wonder what your experience in the House of Parliament, I'm always very shocked and scandalised by the rudeness and the absolute puerile carry-on in Parliament, in Victorian State Parliament the same, and I wonder, as an MP, you've just uh, said in one of your statements that the state has become the number one threat to the environment, causing irreversible damage to the climate. How can the state be in the way? Well, the state is in the way because what I see in Parliament is kind of a very adversarial attitude and a very narrow focus on a particular uh, political mandate. Um, and because of that, what I see is the evidence and facts. They just become um, a casualty of that mandate. And I think that's what we need to really um, recognize and consider that we are here making good decisions uh, for everyone, that it's, it's not for a, a vested interest, but that's what's happened with these land clearing laws that you were mentioning earlier, uh, which were brought in late last year in New South Wales Parliament. They are at the behest of a very small group of very powerful, influential agribusinesses in New South Wales, is my reading of it. Mm -hmm. Because when we, you know, when the um, bills were proposed, when these laws were proposed, like everyone literally came out against them, environmentalists, ecologists, scientists. We even had a group of hundreds of farmers. They were smaller farmers who came out and said, we do not want this because native vegetation on land is actually good uh, for sustainable agriculture. It's good for the soil. It's good for water quality. So th there was hardly anyone who was saying that these laws should be brought in, but yet the government went ahead and did that. And they know what's going to happen, and I say that because we have proof of it, just north of New South Wales in Queensland. When similar laws were brought in some years ago by the Queensland then Liberal government, within a short few years, it resulted in the doubling of land clearing and the removal of almost 300,000 hectares of bushland. That's um, 20 times the Royal National Park um, in Sydney, if you look at it that way. And that released 35 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. And you know what that did was that essentially cancelled out 80% of the greenhouse gas abatements that were purchased by the federal government. 
So it doesn't make any sense that on on the one hand we're trying to have abatement programs that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, mm. and on the other hand we're clearing land that releases more than what we have, um, you know, kind of just achieved. Yeah. It, it just makes no sense to me as a scientist, as an engineer. No, this is the problem, this two steps forward, two steps or cancelling mm. out each other's efforts. But let's go back to the agribusinesses you mentioned. I heard um, you speak in Sydney uh, for that film, Cultivating Murder, and mm. we've interviewed the director of that film and talked a bit about that because that film really caught it, the kind of fear that was operating in a small town where certain interests were dominating. I wonder what it's like in Parliament. How have they pressured the New South Wales Parliament to let them clear land which really should be illegal to clear? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been going around Vivian um, across New South Wales actually taking that film and screening it in various places um, in New South Wales and um, the film um, you know, producer Greg has been there as well at many occasions as has the family of uh, you know, the murdered uh, environment officer, Turner. Um, Glenn Turner. Yeah, absolutely. And it is absolutely devastating. Every I've seen that film now many times and it evokes similar emotions, a roller coaster literally of emotions, mm. which is real sadness and, and then real anger as well. But you also see people in that movie and that inspires you so much, people who are not willing to give up. Uh, and But what becomes very clear through that film as well is that these, Big agribusinesses are really big. They are huge. Um, and I guess what their vision is to maximize uh, productive capacity of the land and as soon as possible, you know. But what I guess they're missing out is that after some decades, that land will become absolutely unproductive. Mm. But how um, are they getting their way, Marine? Are they paying mm-hmm. money for this? I mean, are they? is it corruption? What, yes, what it? I mean, we haven't been, I mean, I haven't really been able to prove any money exchanging hands, but we do know that um, National Party Heartland is in those areas. And we do know that it was the National Party who's been really pushing for these changes uh, within the Liberal National Coalition. Um, but I, I also believe that the Liberal government really has very low priority uh, towards the environment. In my four years in Parliament, I've seen four environment ministers come and go. Mm-hmm. It's just a revolving door. It is a very, very low priority. And I think a mix of a very low priority plus one part of the, you know, the junior partners of the Liberal Party at the behest of um, you know, their networks pushing for these changes is what has resulted in this. I mean, I think the environment movement did work hard and campaign hard for this not to happen. And we were able to delay these laws by about six years because uh, the, they came in with this idea in 2011 that they would overturn the laws. So we worked hard and for six years were able to push them back. But sadly, this has happened now. And, and now I think the only way um, to get back to more environmental protections is to pretty much boot this government out in 2019. Well, Mark Butler was on the radio last week and he said to us he thought that forestry should become a Commonwealth responsibility. Is that mm-hmm. another way? Uh, well, you know, I don't know if we see much better returns at the federal level at this point for the environment as well. I just think we need to make sure that we elect politicians who care about the environment. You were talking about the Houston floods Mm 
Mm. Um, just earlier when you were introducing the show, um, I mean, I have family living in Houston and also in places where you mentioned afterwards yeah. in Pakistan and those places. And I think this is, I did read a couple of um, articles that did, obviously the mainstream media didn't even mention climate change, which is the other issue. These laws that have been changed have no mention of climate change in them. But there were a couple of articles I read which did talk about climate change. And basically they they were talking about the Americans need to wake up and they actually need to elect people into their parliaments who care about the environment. I think that's the bottom line. We can keep passing the buck between the state and the federal government. But unless we have uh, people um, in there who are sympathetic to this, who understand the long-term view, who understand, um, I guess, the implications of the environment for our wildlife, for our future generations, it'll be really hard to make these changes. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a lot of money in preventing that view come across. You know, we heard about Exxon Mobil funding for mm. years, you know, disinformation. It's like the smoking thing. You can never say, oh, that my cancer was caused by those cigarettes uh, my neighbour smoked, for example. And it's a similar thing. You can't say these floods in Bangladesh, a third of Bang- Bangladesh is underwater. And it's just horrific. And it's so stark that it's not reported on our media very much. You know, it's just a, oh, sorry, tragedy in a foreign car- country, but it's nothing to do with culpability. And, and I, I can't see climate change culpability at the international legal level ever really catching on you know it's like the smoking thing but I do feel that um, it's going to we we have to point the finger at ourselves we have to not just care for nature but we have to be responsible to our our neighbours where the emissions are. We have to because the first impacts of climate change are being felt by um, countries low-lying countries um, which probably didn't do much to create climate change in the first um, instance Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I've done a bit of work in uh, on women and the impacts on women on climate change, and they are even worse than other populations because especially in countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, um, it's women who, um, you know, who might go out to collect water and to get firewood and who are most impacted when these floods happen as well because often they don't know how to swim and they, you know, um, it, it's just horrific. And I absolutely, you're absolutely right that we have to take responsibility for that. But I don't think that that's, realization that we're seeing at this point in time well tell us this is free radio tell us what you know from those countries what's what some of the realities that are not being reported here um so you know there was a huge flood so i come from pakistan originally that's where i grew up there was there was there were floods there about 10 years ago and i just went i went to pakistan just after those floods um and the reality is that people had no drinking water there was disease being spread people's whole lives were shattered because their whole livelihoods went, you know, kind of down the drain with the floods. Um, but the reality also is that there is so much poverty and hunger there that in, in some ways in those countries, like climate change per se is far from people's minds mm. um, because the reality of putting food uh, on the table every night is a very stark one. So it is it is difficult to talk about how to deal with climate change in those countries. But I think that's where we play a very vital role, that it is part of our responsibility as well to work with governments and, and not try to push our coal for them to generate cheap elect- so-called cheap electricity, but actually to help um, with technology, uh, renewable energy technology, for instance, and move, um, help move those countries directly um, towards um, those 
renewable energy and climate-friendly technologies. And I think that's where we are really abrogating our responsibility. Yeah, and I think coming back to land clearing, you know, if we could get on top of the land clearing, I think Reputex reported that ending land clearing here would compete with renewable energy to achieve carbon abatement. So if we could get a, a change in the narrative so that Australia would just stop land clearing and then maybe that's the sort of thing, reforesting countries where the erosion of forests has, you know, the erosion caused by taking away um, trees has has probably made a lot of the flooding much worse. I think that's the kind of thing we can expert, export, but we're not in a position to export anything like that because our our mindset is so short-term. It is, it is, it is, and it does. These land clearing laws really make a mockery of, for instance, New South Wales' commitment to zero emissions by 2050. It's not going to happen when we start clearing land, which it's looking likely with these laws, where there's hardly any, um, you know, regulations on a large part in a large part of New South Wales, and then when there are regulations, they're self-assessed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really dangerous path to follow. Yes. Well, Marine, I just have one question. We're running out of time, but I wanted to just ask you about mining. Many of the listeners would remember the name Laird State Forest because we interviewed many of the people at the time who were locking on to machinery who'd, you know, just loved that place and they would, they'd talk to us about the koalas and the birds and they'd, really grew to love it in the way they'd come there because of climate change but then they grew to actually get that feeling for the the whole nature environment there um but that mine is now making a profit the coal is making emissions and the carbon sink and the koalas are all gone so do do the new laws that you're talking about in the new south wales parliament that make it easier to clear land is that making it easier for coal mines as well so I've camped there as well with the campaigners twice, and I know exactly what you're saying. The love for the forest and love for the trees and the love for Aboriginal heritage was really so strong there. And it was a very emotional time to be with campaigners and be there. And, and yes, these laws absolutely make it easier for mining in the sense that now for when people want to you know, dig up big mines, build big mines, they... Um, don't even have to find offsets for biodiversity, which they had to do in the case of, um, you know, the mine at the Laird Forest. Mm-hmm. Now they can actually pay in some bank account and someone will find biodiversity offsets sometime in the future. So it is, it has, a red carpet has been rolled out to make mining easier, to make big, to make it easier for big developers as well, to chop down our bushland, to chop down our trees, pay some money, um, and it'll be all fine, apparently, according to New South Wales government. Mm. Well, on that note, thank you very much for talking to us, Marine. I hope we can come back to you with happier news when your bill passes through Parliament. It's a pleasure to be with you, and we will never give up, and no. that's what changes things. People working together, yeah. we can overturn these laws, and we will protect our environment. Thank you. So that was Dr. Marine Faruqi from the New South Wales Parliament. And after the break, we're going to talk to a filmmaker. This person is David Galan, who made a film called Understory. You're listening to 3CR Radio.
We're back at the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and we're talking now to David Galan. He is a superb filmmaker. His film Understory takes us into the forests around Bega in New South Wales. You might know, listeners, if you go up from Melbourne up around the coast, around the east, past Eden, and then you come to Bega. It used to be an old whaling port. Over 40 years, local people, farmers and scientists have struggled to preserve the water catchment and the wildlife and the extended forest there that was threatened by logging. We see lyrebirds and quolls in David's film and young activists on horseback. Even Sting, you know, the musician Sting, he came to the camp with glamorous Amazon Indians. I was amazed to see them turning up there. And uh, David's interviews with some of the same people who were in the film earlier, like over the 40 years he got archival footage and then he, he... interviewed again the same of those people who are now a bit elderly and they bring out their triumphant memories it's not a total win either but um you know they they describe the struggle so well so welcome david thank you vivian i'm glad to have you on the show will you tell us about the lyrebirds first i've never seen a lyrebird in the wild how did you film them um we, we live on 40 acres of bush and there are about a dozen live bird mounds, display mounds, uh, uh, around our property. So um, during May, June, July, which is the peak of the, um, the peak of the live bird courtship season, uh, I usually have a camera on at least one of those mounds. And uh, also during the, the dry months, we have a, a cascade that runs down through a, um, a gully in our property and there's a permanent water hole there. So... Um, Times when water's um, pretty scarce, the, the wildlife will come to that water hole. So again, it's a place where I can put a motion camera and uh, and record live birds. Well, it was wonderful. It added there was so much beauty in your film that, you know, I go through the bush and I think a lot of animals are very shy. You don't just see them easily in the Australian bush, but if you live there like that, you have a, a much deeper knowledge of them and the people who did this campaign over so many years, I think they had that feeling for the bush. Yes, they did, yes. Well, look, climate change would not have been a driver for those people, I don't think, 40 years ago, but what did motivate them when you interviewed them? <clears throat> they were pitted against their neighbours, who some of them were wanting the logging jobs, and they had to be fairly brave. Um, hmm. what, what motivated them, do you think? Um well, some of them, as you mentioned in your introduction, were farmers, so water was very important for them. The more you log the catchment, <coughs> pardon me, the catchment, um, the quicker the release of the water and, and uh, you know, if you don't get the volume and that slow drawdown of water through the soil, um, you get erosion, things like that. So uh, water's important for everyone. Uh, the catchment, as the film highlights, in those days, before a large dam was built just uh, down near Marimbula, the catchment uh, uh, channeled through a pipe, through a very small weir, um, water through into coastal towns. So it wasn't just the farmers; it was you know everyday people in, in small towns like Marimbula who who needed that water. Um, now, after that, a, a large dam was built, but uh, up until that time. There's only a small weir, and we, we put a picture in the in the film of the size of the weir, and you know not many people um, had been in there to, to see how how small that catchment was, and so um, fresh flow of clean water was was very important to everyone. So, 
<laughs> but also uh, their biodiversity, you know, the, the, the yeah. range of animals um, was, was very important. People could see how devastating clear felling was uh, and what we, what we sort of call today industrial logging on, on wildlife. Loss of tree hollows is um, very, very important. Um, it was tree hollows support, you know, 17 to 28 percent of the arboreal mammals, the vertebrates rather, in, in the forest. And, um, you know, old timers like Jim Collins, who was a um, farmer, um, was a high school head teacher, high school teacher of science. He would get up on the stump, you know, with his with his arms outraised and said, you know, the black cockatoos and the like need two metre hollows to um, to reproduce, to you know, to, to, to find a somewhere to live and to reproduce and raise young. And he brought up something then, which um, people like uh, Dr. Oshin Sweeney, the chief ecologist from the National Parks Association has been highlighting the last two years in his paper on the regional forest agreements. Jim Collins, the farmer, said in those days, if we destroy those hollows, those birds would live on for some time because birds like um, cockatoos can live, you know, 67 years of age. <laughs> but we might know for some time the impact. And that's what Dr. Oshin Sweeney highlights, a term called extinction debt yeah. so they we're building up this, this sense of debt but we mightn't see the outcomes for some time because the impacts will be you know you know in years to come if we don't take uh, the necessary steps to um, preserve endangered species yes i didn't know about tree hollows but uh, we had professor david lindenmeyer on the radio and he he's one of the people who appears in your film and he but he had told me he was telling me oh reptiles you know even when we have more degrees of warming maybe two or three degrees of warming he's looking into mm. the really the next hundred years he said yes. reptiles will be able to hide in those they might be able to survive you know we have to grow yes. heat resistant tree species as well but in those hollows they can survive I thought wow the, the hollows just the last thing you think of when you look at a tree but it's the most important for an animal isn't it that's right and they take a long time to um, to form it's uh, the, the aging of the tree um, you know, they lose their limbs and weather, um, termite action, things like that. Um, eventually produce those hollows and then even, um, the hollows can be enhanced by things like, um, um, azure kingfishers, oh, sorry, um, sacred kingfishers. I've seen them peck into a little hollow and excavate it and, um, and enhance it, you know, make it more of a, uh, a room to, um, to, to raise young. Yeah. These things take a long time, and um, you know when we when we have cutting cycles that were predicted like forty year cycles, um, and you know forest um, logging, logging industry people and their supporters will say, well, the trees grow back, mm. and we we've never argued against that. They do grow back. Yeah. Sometimes they don't grow very much in these bony, dry ridge tops, but it takes a, a tree, you know, on average. 160, 200 years to form a really good hollow, large yeah. hollow for big owls, big, um, big birds to, um, big, uh, gliders to yeah. inhabit. No, um, so that's why the work of, you know, David Lindemeyer has been very important. 
uh, even just this week, we had a, um, a really good uh, um, broadcast on Radio National Breakfast talking about environmental accounting. And again, this is uh, um, David Lindemeyer's work um, uh, from ANU um, done in the central highlands of the Victorian forests to say how important water is there when you account for it. Um, you know, the, the forests left intact are worth 25 times more than they are in the value of logging because of the water um, they protect, the quality of the water, the volume of the water. Yeah, I think the, I noticed the number of people in your film who were now elderly people or older people, but they had been campaigning. They were scientists, quite a lot of them. They attracted a lot of scientists, and I think some of those might have put their, their necks out a bit. To, and, but they were discovering things, and one of the things Lyndon Mice said that they discovered that all those logging roads and the logging coops actually let the wildfires in. If you don't have them there, the, the fire, the, whole forest more or less contains a fire or can and I wondered what other what other um, benefit did you get from having scientists really on your side well we had um, local people we had um, two ecologists um, working with us um, Heather Meek who's a local still local and um, we had our other scientists um who were able to oversee the data but also draw in and um, help uh, connect with uh, scientists who are at major institutions in the city. And uh, that's the point in the film that Kim Taysom makes, the, the economist who was uh, one of the key people in the film. It wasn't until we had um, forest direct actions like you mentioned people on horseback um, mm. holding up logging trucks and things mm. like that which gained media attention that then drew um, the, uh, the attention and the focus of scientists who then came in and worked with volunteers to um, get our, our research on things like koalas up to a standard that it could be published, it could be um, taken notice of um, peer-reviewed mm. and stand up to scrutiny um, and then when Bob Carr became Premier and um, brought in um, panels of scientists to overlook the data that's when the um, that's when the tide turned dramatically and we were able to secure South East Forest National Park which you know had over 130,000 hectares protected up until that time the industry was only, and the, um, the Conservative government was only going to concede you know, very steep, rocky ridge tops, and um, you know, a sort of a park that was very irregular, like a sort of a, you know a line of spaghetti that had no sort of uh, integrity about it because it, it, it didn't connect across many sort of quality habitats. Yeah, well look, I, I love hearing about the tide changing there because that's what everybody listening to this program who's at all an activist will be wanting to know. How do you throw the switch, turn the tide, when's it going to happen? And your film really is a very loving sort of tribute to the people who did carry on, you know, pass the baton on and so on for 40 years. I don't think the battle is completely won ever because, you know, there's always new new narratives of the, as they say. And I have heard it said that 
protest is all about changing the narrative, and I think you must have changed the narrative to get Sting there and those Amazon tribe people. You were you were linked up across the world with people who also were trying to stay, save these water catchments and these biodiverse places. But someone, I think in the film, said logging is the whaling of the 21st century, and another one said forests are worth more standing. And those are new thoughts. I don't think I would have thought those, you know, thoughts 40 years ago or 30 years ago, but now it seems true to me. Yes, forests are worth more standing. And I wanted to know the last question, David. How is the need now with climate change to draw down carbon, how is that changing the narrative for you? Well, um, it's making it difficult. <laughs> I think I mentioned um, when we met last time that the Adani um, mine is uh, completely swamping any forest issues at the moment, and, and they, they run in parallel, obviously. Um, retaining, retaining native forest is going to be a great way to deal with lots of things, water, biodiversity, but also dealing with carbon. Mm-hmm. And it's the cheapest cheapest way is just to retain the forests, and that's why um, the focus of understory the film is how do you value a forest, the forest we all own. So we need to we need to change the narrative. We need to um, help people see that uh, when the regional forest agreements were signed uh, twenty years ago, that there was very little focus amongst common people outside outside scientific circles about the dangers of climate change. Now, since that time, um, there's a whole lot of cheap plantation material from Southeast Asia, which our industry can't compete with. So it's a loss-making operation. This is, this is the crazy situation we're in. The people still think there's lots and lots of jobs. Mm. In the um, in the hardwood um, native forest logging, there's not. You know, I've flown my drone over logging coops of late. There are three machines and three people mm. logging, mm. clearing vast amounts of area. Mm. And these highly mechanised machines, they never get out of the cabs. No one's standing on the ground in chainsaws. The chainsaw, they can clear vast amounts of area. They're still making a loss. Mm. So we're paying for the de- degradation of our own forests where we could be leaving the tree standing, getting the benefits of clean air, clean water, enhanced tourism, um, and all those other flow-on benefits protecting wildlife. As Australians, we have a unique area, unique wildlife. Some of these species are under immense pressure of extinction, even koalas, and even things, as you mentioned, to come back to your question, um, 20 years ago, when we were researching for koalas, we were finding masses of greater gliders. We never thought that that would be on an endangered list or threatened species list. Mm-hmm. And now they're listed as vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So, and they're, and they're hollow-dependent species. So yeah. that just uh, tells the tale that um, we're really putting wildlife, fantastic wildlife, at risk. And we're, we're paying for it as, as, uh, as uh, citizens because governments are subsidising this ailing, loss-making industry. And as uh, someone in the film says, um, as uh, Dame Wimbush, the CSIRO ecologist, says in Understory, it makes no sense either economically or ecologically to continue logging our native forests. Okay, well, thank you for being such a good spokesperson 
Lynn for it and also thank you for your film with listeners you'll see, I'll put a link on our website but the name of the film is Under Story and that's like uh, all the things that go on underneath the top of the trees and it's the film is just full of lovely um, scenes of Australian bush that you've probably never seen as I have never seen either so thank you very much David for your work and um, you're welcome Vivian you introduced me to a couple of people from the great Southern Forest Alliance and I'd like listeners to maybe keep that in mind because it's like the Great Forest National Park in Victoria. It's a huge uh, connected connectivity between forests and, and I think their hour is coming and we might interview them at a later date. So thank you, David. Excellent. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. Thanks, listeners, for listening to that. That's the Great Forest Great Southern Forest Alliance, uh, I mentioned, and the film Understory. Now, after the break, we're going to talk to Jess Panagaris from Wilderness Society. Love that music, listeners. Andy's put it on to soothe my <laughs> my mind. It's called Lake Tali Khan, isn't it, Andy? Yeah, well, we've now got a person who is a wonderful activist. I've interviewed her before. She's um, It's Jess Panagiris. She's the national campaigner with the Wilderness Society. She's a Rhodes Scholar. And we heard from her once before in connection with the peat fires and logging in Indonesia. But tonight we'll hear about the campaign to stop clearing and save the climate, and we're going to have a focus now on Queensland. So, Jess, you sent me a YouTube showing land clearing in Queensland. I'd like to know, it was very devastating, and it'll be linked to our podcast for this program, but if listeners see it, why are farmers clearing so much land? It looks like a desert. Yeah, hi, Vivian, and thanks thanks very much for having me on the program. Um so the video that we've shared with you and that will be shared to the viewers, um, just for those who haven't seen it, shows kind of two massive bulldozers with a huge chain strung between it, um, driving through woodland and knocking over everything in its path. Um, and that was footage that was taken at Olive Vale Station in Cape York in Queensland in 2015. Um, the question why, why is that sort of clearing occurring? Well, it's actually clearing, it's happening all across Queensland for, for different reasons. Um, and there's a few different industries who are in the frame for clearing and they include big agriculture, mining and urban development. Yeah, it, why, I want to know why they're clearing so much. It, it, you know, like it's just nothing left. Yeah, well, look, it's a very good question. Um, at the moment, there's an MCG-sized area of forest and bushland being cleared every three minutes in Queensland, uh, vast amounts of land being cleared. Um, but studies have actually shown that there's enough 
land that's already degraded that could contain more housing, that you could grow crops on, that you can farm on, that you can graze on. So there's actually enough land already there. And that's actually our argument, Vivian, is saying there's already enough land to go about your enterprise. You don't need to clear old bushland and forest that's never been touched before and that's home to really important and often threatened and endangered wildlife. Do you think it's a sort of panicky thing that they think the laws, the climate laws, the carbon sequestration laws are going to come into force sooner or later and we better clear as much as we can so then we say this is now cleared land? Um, is it a kind of panic reaction? It's like dig up all the coal before the uh, curtain falls on the coal industry. Is that the sort of mentality? Hmm, it's a good question. Look, there, there's no doubt an element of people wanting to clear while they can. Because the truth is that at the moment, the laws in Queensland allow a huge amount of broad-scale deforestation or clearing to occur. Um, but I guess it's important to point out that it's only a really small proportion of industry players that are doing this. And the vast majority of people don't go about their business causing mass deforestation. So I really just want to make it clear that it's a very small number of outliers who are doing this kind of really excessive deforestation and land clearing. Mm. Well, it's, uh, you know, these laws that are, uh, that are in place, I think it's true to say that they've been weakened, haven't they? Um, they uh, Peter Beattie and Anna Bly had got in place some degree of laws and the um, things were on hold, the carbon emissions were coming down, but then uh, Campbell Newman sort of opened it all up again and it sounds like the new Labor government hasn't been able to reinforce the laws or enforce the laws at all. And I wonder if these big players that you're talking about, are they paying for this? Is there some sort of corruption going on here? Oh, look, I can't speak to corruption, um, but certainly there were laws that were introduced by successive Labor governments in Queensland throughout the 2000s that really brought the deforestation and land clearing problem back under control in Queensland. And the lowest level we have on record was from around 2010 where the bush and forest destruction rate got down to under 100,000 hectares, which was the first time it had done that in Queensland in a very, very long time. But what we saw when Campbell Newman was elected was he progressively weakened the land clearing restrictions um, and since he did that, there's been a threefold increase in the rates of clearing such that in the last year for which we have data, it was nearly 300,000 hectares of forest and bushland being destroyed. Um, again, that's a, an MCG-sized area of forest and bush every three minutes. Um, and so it, it proves that laws that control land clearing, they work to protect forest and bushlands. And it was kind of a dirty deal done under Campbell Newman that saw those laws get ripped up and we're now seeing the consequences in the bulldozers and chains ripping across the landscape. Okay, well look, let's talk about now um, the sort of um, um, uh, emissions reduction fund. Now, uh, you were quoted in an article by Mike Seagam in the Saturday paper and he said the majority of emissions reduction fund is poured into questionable abatement schemes. So, you know, farmers up there are paid for questionable abatement schemes to discourage land clearing, while 
massive deforestation cancels out any climate gain. So on one hand, you're saying, you know, we'll, we'll keep our forest in the ground. On the neighbouring property, you can clear it all. So it's just uh, zero sum game. But I thought farmers were being paid from that emissions reduction. I thought they were being paid to plant trees. What, what happened there? Great question, Vivian. Um, and, and you're right, to put this in context, Australia is supposed to be doing what it can to do our role in keeping climate change within two degrees and ideally within 1.5 degrees. That's what we've signed up to do. The centrepiece of the federal government emission reduction policy is the Emissions Reduction Fund and most of that money has been spent, as you say, on vegetation projects. So that's basically tree-related projects ranging from avoided deforestation, so paying people not to clear their land, um, through to allowing people to regrow vegetation on their land. And there are a few active planting projects, by which you mean you're actively planting new trees. Mm. Um, and you're right, we did the analysis that showed that $1.4 billion of taxpayers' money has been spent on vegetation projects alone under this climate policy. Um, but on current rates of clearing in Queensland, that any benefit from that is wiped out in two and a half years of clearing. Mm. So you're right, we've got this kind of absolutely inconsistent policy. It makes no sense. On the one hand, we're, we're paying landholders to keep trees in the ground. And on the other hand, we're weakening laws that enable other landholders to knock those trees down. Um, so it makes no sense. And it's one of the first things that we need to fix if we're going to deal with this climate and nature crisis. Well, you know, there's such a thing as international uh, global, you know, carbon credits. And a Reputex report said recently that ending land clearing could compete with renewables for carbon abatement. You could get as much carbon abatement from just not land clearing as you would with putting in renewables. So do you think the Commonwealth should take over, the federal government should take over this area of forestry in line with our international commitments or what else would put the brake on land clearing? I can't think of anything else. Mark Butler said that last week. You know, the federal government mm -hmm. should take over. Mm -hmm. Look, I think the federal government has a critical role to play in controlling deforestation and land clearing in Australia. Um, as, as you point out rightly, that the Reputex report shows that we could make massive emission savings if we stopped clearing. And it's a very cheap and simple thing to do. We obviously need to do that at the same time as transitioning to renewable energy. It's not an either or. No, we no. need to do both. No. And Australia, Australia could do, um, could lead the world in bringing down our emissions if we acted on fossil fuels and we stopped our own deforestation and land clearing crisis. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's federal responsibilities here around the international climate commitments we've made, but there are also responsibilities around national laws for nature protection. Um, for example, our, our Commonwealth environment laws are supposed to protect matters of national environmental significance and the, the scale of deforestation in Queensland at the moment means that a lot of those nationally important environmental matters should be regulated by the federal government and unfortunately they're not. The federal government has kind of thrown up its hands when it comes to deforestation and land clearing and they're not playing their role. Mm. Well, 
you know, we just had David Gallant talking about the southeast forest in New South Wales, and he said, look, it just doesn't make money. It's subsidised by taxpayers' money, and it doesn't even provide many jobs nowadays. Um, I think in Queensland it might be that the land clearing is not for selling the wood, it's for um, grazing, and we, we stand to make a lot of money out of exporting beef uh, from that, those northern rangelands. Is that does there need to be some sort of compensation for people in that way? Look, just you're right. In Queensland, um, the common sorry, the Queensland government figures show that the bulk of the vegetation loss is for grazing, cattle grazing, but it's also for other industries, including urban development and mining. Um, so we have to make sure that whatever laws, whatever controls we put in place apply across all sectors. We're not singling any particular industry out. Mm. Um, I think what's really clear is that Australia as a country needs to move towards zero deforestation world. Other, other countries have made policies that they are moving towards zero deforestation. The world is recognising through corporate commitments, government commitments, that we've actually destroyed too many of the world's forests and now's the time to look at the mistakes we've made and gone, okay, we've gone too far. We need to have sustainable development. We need to develop industries in a way that mean we're not destroying the habitat of threatened species like the koala, that we're developing our resources in a way that means we'll still have healthy landscapes in 100 years and industries in 100 years. Um, so, no, we don't think people should be compensated for not trashing our forests and the bush. Um, we think we should have sensible laws that protect our forests and bushland because they're the responsibility and they're the mm, inheritance of all of us. Yeah. Um, but what we do think is that there are really exciting industries in zero deforestation commodities like zero deforestation beef, um, and we've seen that that's become a real premium product in markets like zero deforestation palm oil. Wow, well, that's new. I'd, I'd like you to develop that if we have a bit more time. We're, we're not really running out of time, but I, I wanted to get to your campaign. I've left it almost near the end, but tell us what the Wilderness Society campaign is doing. It's called, um, oh, well, what is it called? It was on the video. I'd like to know what your experience has been in that campaign and what is it called? Oh, so our campaign is to end deforestation in Australia. Um, we're calling for state government in Queensland and in New South Wales and in WA and other states where deforestation and land clearing is out of control to bring in restrictions um, to protect our remaining intact forests and bushlands. Um, but there's also an, an additional part to the campaign, which is we think Australia is really well placed um, to restore a lot of its degraded land. And we do think that there should be a role for incentives paying landholders strategically to restore the Australian landscape. Um, so that, that's kind of the main goal of the campaign. Um, one of the main things we've found actually going out and talking to people at community meetings um, has been that most people have no idea that this scale of deforestation and land clearing is occurring in Australia. Mm. They think this is a, an issue for other countries that they've heard of in relation to deforestation like Indonesia and Brazil, um, they have no idea it's happening here. So that's kind of the first important point for the campaign is just to raise awareness about the issue because most people just have no idea that Australia is experiencing this crisis. Mm. Well, you're sort of uh, 
countercultural, aren't you? Because the main media doesn't want to focus on that. Occasional programs will, will I've seen that thing with the chain between two tracks. I've seen that on occasionally on television, but it's very in the background. And I, I think um, we talked before about changing the narrative. I think uh, it's wonderful what you just said about um, zero deforestation commodities. I think maybe we can talk that up. And certainly I had um, Professor Lindenmeyer talking before about corridors, you know, wildlife corridors just joining mm-hmm. up because he was really thinking towards the climate change future. We've only had one degree of warming, but he's thinking of two or three degrees of warming and protecting the animals so that they can um, migrate and, and you need a corridor and 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 often farmers and landholders are happy to provide that on their property as well as in national parks and um, state lands. So um, that's something that we have to think about and talk it up as a new narrative of what we're going to be proud of and what we're going to be providing. But um, at the moment, the narrative is all the other way. Well, one of the, the really interesting things, Vivian, that we found in New South Wales, because New South Wales went through this process, as Maureen was talking about, earlier of weakening its land clearing laws last year, which was a really dreadful outcome um, and one that is on the wrong side of history, we're sure. But one of the really interesting things that we found there was that there were hundreds and hundreds of farmers across New South Wales who joined the campaign for strong land clearing laws. And so it's exactly as you're saying, that actually the vast majority of people realise that's the way of the future. We need to have a sustainable land base for future industry. So actually more and more people are totally on board with that narrative. It's just the kind of outdated decision makers and their kind of tired industry lobbyists that we Mm. need to get out of the way so that we can do the thing that most reasonable people know is the way of the future. Mm. All right. Well, I'd I'd just like to finish going back to the global level because we did touch on it with Maureen and it is really on my mind at the moment. India, Bangladesh, Nepal, not just Texas, are suffering displaced people and flooding, crops destroyed, probably hundreds of animals and livestock. Don't even mention them, but that must be a huge devastation in so many countries there. It's a monsoon on steroids, and it's been intensified with only one degree of warming. But the media never says that our land clearing, our exported coal is fueling that. They'll never point the finger at us and make us feel guilty. What are your observations about the reporting, the media, the way they're dealing with this? Well, oh. <laughs> look, um, I wish that the news painted a different picture I mean, what is true is that the impacts of climate change are devastating and they're being felt here and now in terrible ways. And it's usually the most vulnerable people that are feeling the impacts of climate change. And that's the truth. And it needs to be reported. I I would like to see more reporting on what we can actually do to combat it um, rather than it going into this kind of awful political football type situation where... Mm parties just bicker about who's got the better policy, I'd like us to really have sensible conversations about what we can do as Australians to play our part in fixing climate change. And as Australians, we're a massive fossil fuel exporter and we're also one of the leading countries in the world for deforestation and land clearing. A WWF international report um, published showed that Australia was one of 11 deforestation hotspots and we were the only developed country on that list. So yeah, I'd love I'd love there to be more conversations about what we can do as Australians to play our part for a safe climate. Yeah, 
Okay, thank you very much. Jess, I have to cut you there, but I'd love to have you again talking about what you know so well and what I hope is a successful campaign eventually. So that's Thanks all. so much, Vivian. Thank you very much, Jess. So, listeners, uh, I'd like to thank our, um, our guests tonight, Dr. Maureen Faruqi from the New South Wales Parliament, uh, David Gallan, who's the filmmaker for a film, Understory, and Jess Panagiris from the... Um, Wilderness Society and her campaign to save the forests where I'd also like to thank the people who've helped produce this show today Andy with his calm hand on the panel there providing calming music for me and um, just always very reliable there uh, behind the scenes Roger and Jody doing the promotions and uh, we're going to have a program next week on seaweed, so <laughs> tune in again to that. And um, I can't give you any activities to do this time, but I think maybe having a look at a DVD of Understory or checking out the Wilderness Society and see if you can get involved in their um, de- forest reforestation and zero deforestation program um, because it sounds like they need a lot of help. Good night, everybody. We're going to go out with a little bit of music. Um, I think it's going to be David Rovix playing New Orleans in honour of the uh, cyclone in Texas and the monsoons in India. And David Rovix's words, I hope, stay with you. Everybody knew that it could happen. The likelihood was clear. The future was coming. Now it's here. They had to fix the levees, cause otherwise they'd break. On one side was the city, above it was the lake. It was in the daily papers, in bold letters was the writ. What would happen when the big one hit? But every year they cut the funding just a little more so they could give it to the army. To fight their oil war National Geographic and the Times Picayune They forecast the apocalypse Said it was coming soon Preparations must be made, they said Now is the time It was years ago, they shouted Inaction was a crime They said the dikes must be improved And the wetlands must be seen But Washington decided Instead they should believe Cause laws were more important than people's lives So put some gold dust in your eyes And hope no storm arrives New Orleans New Orleans New Orleans Years and years of war No evacuation plan It was just that the waters froze Get out if you can There were no buses No one chartered any trains There was no plan to rescue All of those who wouldn't be All the people with no money, all the people with no wheels, all of those who couldn't hotwire, one that they could steal. Thousands and thousands of people abandoned by the state, abandoned by their country, just left to meet their fate. New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans.
destitute who couldn't get away. And the world will remember those sad and awful days when people shouted from their houses, dying on their roofs. When people came to find them, they were turned back by the troops. They died there with no water. They died there in the heat. They were shot down by the soldiers for trying to find some food. Where the color of your skin determines what your life is.